Praise the Lord. Thank you for your kind words. I'm very, very humbled by them. Thank you so much for being so kind to me this week and just treating me with such respect and honor. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for every one of you that are here tonight. I don't believe that it's a sacrifice for us to be in church two nights in a row. I believe that it is our great offering to be in church two nights in a row. I'm thankful that we are here together tonight one more time. I'm especially grateful to see one of my good friends become one of my good friends this year and last year, Brother brother Sletton. I'm very thankful for you. Love you. You are well-respected everywhere I go. I bring your name up and I say, God, I love that guy. So I'm thankful for you, and I echo all of their words. I'm very, very humbled that you're here tonight, you and your precious family. Thankful for your friendship. I don't know how far of a drive it is from Fargo to here because I'm a little a little um, ignorant to the geography, but I'm thankful you drove whether an hour or 10 minutes. I'm glad you're here. Amen. Amen. And every one of you that are here tonight, I'm thankful that y'all are here. I uh, feel a word on me and felt it uh, just before service. And I know the expectations that are often on the evangelist, especially when we do something extended. I know that traditionally you probably want the evangelist to sweat and scream and holler and all those things. And that's how we have determined good preaching nowadays. But I am not going to do that tonight. Amen. Amen? Amen. If you're disappointed, take it up with God. I, uh, you have no need that I would um, scream at you this evening. I feel a very strong word on me, and I just will find out the reason why. I'm just submitted to him. Whatever he says, I trust him. I don't know everything that's always going on, but I know he does, and I don't want to be led by sight. I want to be led by spirit, and God knows more than I'll ever know, so I submit to his plan. And so I feel to teach. Now, I need to preface this, and I may not need to. You may be fully aware of all this. Just because somebody teaches doesn't mean we just sit here and just, I think we can, we only think we can participate when everybody's screaming and we're riling up the emotions. I am of the persuasion that the word of God is good enough to provoke us to a response all by itself. I don't have to push trigger buttons. I don't have to scream, are you apostolic, to get a response out of you. I think the word can do that all by itself. Now, if you believe that and you amen the word tonight, I will pray that you would. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 19. If you don't have it, I'm going to be uh, reading. It should be on the screens tonight, but Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19 through 27. There is a tremendous amount of revelation within this enormously deep book. And just to extract from chapter 7 feels irresponsible but I don't intend to just extract from this chapter. I feel this chapter will give us our heading tonight to go into the direction that the Spirit is leading me, amen? It tells us, for the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant, a better covenant. Amen. There is a better covenant through this man, Jesus. The former priests were made, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, speaking of Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. We are very blessed because the priest that we have cannot die. That's really, really good news. 
So that means that he can go on our behalf continually. He never wears out. He never ages. He cannot die. And he is very, very good at being a mediator. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. That right there should be enough to just make you have such peace that he is able to save to the uttermost. I don't know what has shifted in our movement that we have, we don't have the faith in our salvation we used to have. We just, we think we can lose it just like that. Oh well, okay. He continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. There is a powerful message within the entire book of Hebrews, but it's going to demand a lot from you tonight to get it. And so I'm going to appropriately title this tonight, Paradigm Shift, because that is what it will take. And I am aware that paradigm shifts are often met with a first of, no, I don't know if I'm going to follow that. That's entirely up to you. You can do whatever you want to. I don't know if anybody revealed that to you, but God, if you want Barabbas, that's what he'll give you. You can have whatever you want. And so the word will stand as true regardless of my desire. My desire is to come into alignment with word, and I am fully aware that you can, re you can reject this tonight. I'm aware of that, and I'm prepared for that. But if you receive it, here's what I can promise you. I will promise you what has been given to me. That is peace. That is comfort. That is joy. All of these things will fall into this room if you receive this. But it's going to demand a paradigm shift. So if you're prepared for that, I want you to raise your hands. And I want you to just elevate your thoughts into a heavenly place right now. Ask for God to speak to you. Ask for God to minister to you. Father, in the name of Jesus, all that you are is perfect. It is holy. It is right. It is just. Father, these are your words, none of mine. I don't want any of my opinion. I want all of your divine truth in this room tonight. Father, this word that you have given me has changed my life. And God, I believe that it will change the lives of everyone who receives. Father, this is your word. I pray in the name of Jesus that it would minister to us, that it would challenge us, that it would comfort us. Father, I come into this place with a comforting word. God, I understand that someone who has been raised on something else may not readily receive it. I pray that your spirit just work on us tonight. In the precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen, amen. You may be seated. A paradigm is simply a pattern. It is a framework. An example of a paradigm is gravity. Gravity is a paradigm that you live within. You are governed by it. Gravity sets the framework that when something goes up, it must come back down. 
Now, depending on how much or how little gravity there is, that is the paradigm or the framework or the pattern that you are bound to. You live within it. A scientist can work within the paradigm of gravity by weighing an object. I weigh right at around 195 pounds governed by the pattern or the framework of gravity. However, if I were on Mars, that paradigm changes. If you put me on Mars, I weigh 71 pounds there because gravity works differently on Mars than it does here on Earth. Nothing has changed in me as far as weight is concerned. I'm just within the pattern, the framework, the paradigm, if you will, of Mars. Another example of a paradigm would be Ptolemy's geocentric model of the universe. Ptolemy believed that the earth was at the center of the universe. This belief is a paradigm. This is the framework. This is the pattern that they, they would live by. A paradigm shift, though, occurs when one paradigm theory is replaced by another. For example, Ptolemy's paradigm shifted and it gave way to Copernicus who had the theory which stated that the sun was at the center of the universe. Ptolemy's paradigm was challenged by another paradigm. And if you think that that is no big deal, Copernicus was excommunicated from the church for introducing the paradigm that the sun is at the center of the universe. The Catholic Church got so frustrated by this paradigm and by him introducing something new, even though it was true, they kicked him out of the church because they would rather adhere to what is comfortable, what has been taught and what has been believed for so long. In 1515, Nicholas Copernicus proposed that the earth was a planet like Venus or Saturn, and that all planets circled around the sun, and we are in fact caught in the sun's gravitational pull. Afraid of criticism, he did not want to publish his findings, for he was afraid of disapproval. He did not publish this theory until 1543, even though he had the revelation of it in 1515. He revealed this in 1543, shortly before his death. The theory gathered very few followers, followers, and for a time, some of those who did give credence to the idea of the earth rotating around the sun were also excommunicated from the Catholic Church. Essentially, this paradigm shift gave a foundation for the future. You, you may ask, big deal. Who cares if the sun is at the center or the earth is at the center? What weight does that hold on the grand scale of things? Space travel cares. You do not leave this planet if you adhere to the former paradigm, which is that the earth is at the center of the gravity. You never explore anything more than this world because the math will never line up. If you believe that the earth is at the center of the galaxy, then you cannot leave this planet in a space shuttle until the paradigm shifts. But paradigm shifts always are rejected at first. And that's okay. You realize that Paul came to a group of people called the Bereans and he preached to them. And they said, hold up, hold up. We need to go and study this ourselves to see if it's all true. 
And Paul is so secure by the gospel that he was preaching that he looked at them and he says, great are you. Please go do it because if you do, you'll see what I see and you won't be moved. It's, it's one thing, if we just take everything at face value that comes from behind a pulpit or across YouTube, you are in danger. I am not demanding you do anything tonight but go study it yourself. I don't demand anything from anybody. I just minister what God has shown me in the word through study. I don't just read through a simple breeze through and just be like, okay, well, that's the word. That's irresponsible. Study to show thyself approved. So it is going to always be a reality that when you introduce something that is different than what you have adhered to your whole life, it is going to be rejected at first until the recipient has enough time to study everything they've heard. But I believe that if they will study, they will believe it as passionately as the one who told it to them and they'll go and tell it as well. So this is the framework A new understanding was gained and the former paradigm shifted. We no longer believe that the earth is at the center of our galaxy. This paradigm shifted. It is settled now. It is established. Uh, I'd like to give this example. Let's, I want you to imagine a big seesaw up here on the, on the platform. Okay. All of us are born leaning to one side of a seesaw. That's where we're born. It's, we're naturally going to fall to one side. And it's not, it's not always, it's sometimes personality that leans us to the side of a, of a seesaw, whether to the right or to the left. It also depends on your upbringing. It can depend on your, if you were raised in church, the church you were raised in, will push you towards one of the sides unless they're tre- teaching true biblical concepts. Me, if I was never in church at all, I would lean heavy to the right side of the seesaw. I am a black and white kind of guy. I am right or wrong, do or die. It says what it says. I'm that kind of guy. And I'm extremely hard on myself. So I am going to lean to the far right of the seesaw. Now, some people are born excelling in forgiveness. I'm not that guy, okay? The Holy Ghost has to do a lot of work in me to help get me to that point. And I'm so thankful that his word and his spirit is doing that, that work. But some people are born on the left side. We call them liberal. We call the people on the right side conservative. We've created terms for the people that are on the right or the left side, okay? Where we belong is in the middle of the seesaw. Here's the paradigm shift. Some of you are just perfectly comfortable with this side. This is where I live. This is my home. You would have despised Jesus because the Pharisees are born on this side too. The Hellenistic Jews are on this side and Jesus is somewhere right here. He's not leaning right or left. He is perfect. You see, there is, there is a way. Jesus said that there is a, a straight and narrow path. That's where Jesus lives is on that road. But lining that road are two deep ditches and it's the right and the left. And those that live in the ditches are blind. That's that's where they live. And Jesus came to pull people out of the ditches. Paul was born in the right side ditch and he was blind until God pulled him out of that ditch and put him on the way. And when he did, Paul becomes this powerful. He's not, he's not liberal, but he's also extremely loving. 
How do you take Paul? How do you take John? The one who wanted to call fire down from heaven to completely annihilate a city. And now John is over here in his epistle saying, if you don't love your brother, you abide in darkness. It's as if he walked with Jesus long enough that God pulled him from his paradigm and planted him. But you realize those 12 disciples fought tooth and toenail constantly while following Jesus. Who's the greatest amongst us? Is it, is it Matthew the liberal or is it Judas the zealot? You see, this is, we, we're trying to get to the middle. What God is trying to do across every denominal movement right now is he's trying to pull people from their comfort zones into the place where he lives. This is going to be the key to end time revival. This is going to be the key. You will never sit down with somebody from another denomination and actually have a coherent and God-fearing, loving conversation with them until you leave the paradigm of opinion and sit in the place of Christ. Because what you'll do is you'll sit at the table every single time trying to convince them why you're right and they're wrong. That's not going to win them. Okay, I've lived in that paradigm. I have argued with more people over things and I've said, you're wrong. And all we do is we have just a, a spitting uh, contest of whose doctrine's better. The, let God be true. Amen. Let's come in the middle and let's, let's actually love people. Let's actually be kind. Let's actually acknowledge that the person who attends another denomination from the one you were raised in actually has read their Bible as well, and they are exemplifying some truths out of that book that we aren't. Oh, man. Let's confess that there are denominal movements that love people far better than we do. Can we, can we acknowledge that? Can we do that without letting go of what we know is true as well, though? See, that's what I've been seeing. We have this problem with overcorrection. I've been watching. I've been in church my whole life, and I've watched people who are driving, and they see, oh, man, that's all true. Those guys are right, and they, they yank the wheel, and they slam over here into this paradigm, and they forget everything they've ever been told. No, you need to just say, okay, that's true, but so is this. And then just correct somewhere into the middle and just drive where we're supposed to drive and say, I want to be loving. I want to be patient. I want to be kind. I want to have all those things, but I don't want to let go of any of this. I, I believe there's one God. I believe his name is Jesus. I believe we need to be baptized in that name. I believe we need to speak with other tongues as the sign of the spirit. But I also know that by all of that, the initial sign is speaking in tongues, but the continued sign is fruit. This is what God is doing right now. We are going to be extremely challenged in the coming days as we approach the end times, as God is challenging all denominal movements right now. There is a movement, and I'm, I'm a part of this movement. I'm in, I'm in seminary right now, and I'm listening to these Trinitarian guys that are confessing we've been wrong all along about the Trinity. I've heard them say it. I was randomly asked this, this past year, this guy called me and he called me to preach at his church. And so I showed up and he just said, hey, when you get here, we heard you preaching online. We want to have you come to our church. And when I arrived, I realized this is not a UPC church. I had no idea. I just showed up and I'm looking around and I'm like, whoa. I went to the pastor. I said, how did you hear about me again? And he was like, well, we heard you online. I said, you know who I am? He was like, you're AJ Holloway. We heard you on, we heard you on YouTube. I said, okay. I said, what do you want me to do here this week? He said, we want you to preach truth to us. I said, all right. 
17 people got filled with the Holy Ghost there. Okay, let me tell you the rest of the story. Saturday, Friday night, I preached on healing in the name. Miracles broke out across this church. So I said, well, that's a perfect setup. Saturday night, I preached on baptism in the name. He didn't like that one as much. Sunday rolls around, I was asked to leave this church. So before you develop an opinion of me, you better know I've been rejected for this truth. Okay? So please do me a favor. Don't, don't get aggravated at me. I have already been persecuted on account of the gospel. But I also learned something profound that these individuals who I would arrogantly look at and say, oh, poor things, they just don't know truth. Oh, how arrogant I am to think that this over here is all truth. It is truth, but everything in that book, did you know the word doctrine, by the way? The, the word doctrine means instruction or teaching. Everything in this book is doctrine. The Godhead is a doctrine. His name in baptism is a doctrine. Tongues, a doctrine. Holiness, a doctrine. But there's a lot of other doctrines in there that we aren't that good at. We're really good at these. But we're getting better, I'm finding, and I want to give us some credit. We're getting better at loving, but we're rejecting it because it feels liberal. You lose nothing being like Christ. If Jesus is liberal, then I want to be liberal. But he's not. Because the same Jesus that looks and stands in front of stones for a woman caught in adultery turns on a heel and says, now you go and sin no more. You don't know what to do with Jesus. He's both forgiving, but also true. I want to be like Christ. I want to be complete. I don't want to be a Pentecostal. I want to be like Christ. That's what I want to be. When people are around me, I want them to walk away and say, oh my goodness, that guy was just so loving, so kind, so gentle. But man, he's not backing down from anything, is he? He's just going to say it as it is. It's not me. It's not my opinion. It's just what the word of God says. There's a paradigm shift happening to the UPC right now and other denominations. We are each born leaning to the side of a seesaw. That's our paradigm. Our calling and life journey is to somehow let the word of God start gently pulling us to the center. God is patient with us. He's giving us time to get this right. Now, let me explain to you Judaism. To understand the full weight of what the author of Hebrews is saying, then we need to take a journey through the paradigm of the life on the right side of the seesaw that they lived on. The Jewish people lived over here in this paradigm. So let me explain why they lived there. For them, sin means something different in the Bible than what we've turned it into. The word sin is the Hebrew word chata. It literally means just to miss. In fact, in Judges 20, 16, it says, among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. That word miss is the Hebrew word chata. Did you know that, that archery is actually, it comes from a, a Latin word, which means to miss. This is, this is the same thing. This sin is the Latin word, sin. The actual English word sin is an archery term and it means to miss. 
So if sin is missing, what is the aim? What is the aim? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is one. And we should love him with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength. That is what you're aiming at. Jesus comes along and he says, oh yeah, the, by the way, that's, that's one side of the quarter. The other side is if you love him, you'll love everybody made in his image. That's the other side of the quarter. You can't love Christ without loving his body. If we're not doing that, you're missing the mark. You, you haven't hit what the aim truly is. So after you miss the mark, the Bible says you're a transgressor. So the word transgress comes from the Hebrew word pesha. It means, it means to break a covenant. Now, did you know that you cannot transgress against a total stranger? I'll explain what I mean. If someone came into Israel, broke into their house, if, a, if an Amalekite came into Israel, broke into their house, they are not a thief. They're not a transgressor, rather. They're, a, they're just a thief. Because you cannot transgress against somebody unless you're in agreement or covenant with them. So someone stealing from an ancient Jewish person is just a thief. But if your neighbor comes into your house and steals from you, they're not just a thief, they're a transgressor. Because you should be able to trust your neighbor. We are fellow kinsmen. So to transgress... It happens when someone's in relationship with somebody else. Now remember, we're in covenant relationship with God. And on the wedding day, Exodus 19, he said, have no other gods before me. And they said, we'll do it. And literally that afternoon, they're bowing down to an image. They committed adultery on the wedding day. And the Bible said they were transgressors. Before, why, are, why are the Israelites called transgressors? But all the people in the promised land who are bowing down to images, they're idol worshipers. Because those in the promised land before Israel got there weren't in covenant relationship with God. So when we miss the mark, love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and if we forget to love our neighbor, we have broken covenant with the one who we told we were going to love. And we are now transgressors. So sin, transgression, and iniquity are always lumped together. Sin means to miss. Transgression means to break covenant. And iniquity means distorted. It means warped. It comes from the Hebrew word for, um, it means, it's avon. It means just completely distorted. You're no longer made in my image. That's not me. That's not what I made. That's not the way you're supposed to be. You're a distorted circus mirror version of what I designed because you're not following the covenant. So to restore all of this, Jesus has to come in the flesh and he would be bruised for our iniquities. That's why the Bible uses such adjectives as we've been shapen by iniquity. We're born warped. And so Jesus comes into the flesh and he says, here's what I'll do. I will be beaten beyond recognition for your distortion. To restore you back into this image, I have to become like yours. I will be without sin, but broken because you are. I'll be warped and mangled. In fact, the Hebrew renders out in Isaiah 53 that his skull, his skin would be beaten off of the skull. He would be unrecognizable for us. 
Do you understand the weight of that, that we were the ones who blew it? This goes all the way back to the covenant with, with, at this point, he's Abram. And God makes a covenant with him. And he says, here, I want you to take three animals. And I want you to cut them in half, throw them on the floor. This, is, this makes no sense to us until you understand the ancient way of making a covenant. When two people were coming into a contract, instead of signing a contract and saying, I'll do this, you do that, they would cut animals in half, throw them on the floor, and both parties would walk between the cut pieces of the animals. And this was a sign of, if one of us breaks the covenant, may what has happened to the animals happen unto us. Notice, though, that Abram cuts the animals, throws them on the floor, falls asleep. God comes down, and he walks through the cut pieces, and Abram never does. You see the beauty of that. God said, Abram, if you break covenant, I'll, I'll take the penalty. If you, if you mess all this up, I'll be distorted. I'll take the penalty. I will be cut in half on your behalf. You understand who we're living for. Why on earth would we spend all our time on, on Netflix and doing things when we have such a great God? In fact, Hebrews 6 says, how can you deny so great a salvation? Such a powerful revelation that God would come down and say, all of you transgress because you missed the mark. You are in iniquity, but here's what I'll do. For your distortion, I'll be beaten beyond recognition. When he was on that cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words were held in reserve for me and you. We were supposed to say those words. We were supposed to get to heaven someday on that judgment day and he say, nope, depart from me, worker of iniquity. I never knew you. And we were supposed to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He came, stood in our place and said it for us so that we would have access to his goodness and his kindness so that we could be saved from our own distortion. By being born again, the distortion has been wiped clean through the blood of a lamb. That's not fair, is it? God's not fair, and we better be thankful he's not fair. Stop praying, God, I want you to be fair. This isn't fair. Don't ask him that. Because what is fair is he doesn't come down here at all and die on our behalf. God is not fair, he's just. And on our behalf, he came down here and died. So this is the world that they lived in, okay? Sin, transgression, iniquity is running rampant. So this is what they had to do. To make the relationship right, amends would need to be made. The heart of the tabernacle was designed. God came down and met with Moses and he said, okay, all of this is broken. The people, they committed adultery on me on our wedding night. And so here to make it right, that's Exodus 19 through, through 42. To make it right, here's what we're going to do. Leviticus 1 and 1 starts. I want you to kill a lamb. God, that's not fair. I know it's not. But that spotless lamb who did nothing wrong and is innocent is going to take the penalty for your error. And by the blood of that spotless lamb, you'll get to come back into covenant relationship with me because you committed adultery on me on my wedding night. I'll take you back because there's a lamb in the process. So what they did was they would set up this tabernacle. It tells us in Exodus 25, 8, it says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Do you see the goodness of God? Let, let me help you with this. Just Jews, our English, we put the punchline at the end of a joke, at the end of a statement. That's the way English literature works. Jews put the punchline in the middle of a sentence. Did y'all know that? 
That's how Hebrew literature works. They make the punchline in the middle. They build up, they make the punchline, and then they descend back down, proving the point in the middle. Look at the, look at the Bible, their Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Where is Leviticus positioned? In the middle. Genesis and Exodus on this side, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy on the other side. It's, this is called chiastic structure. Leviticus is right in the middle of their Bible. And do you know what's in the middle of Leviticus? There's one word in the middle, atonement. That's the punchline of the Bible. That is the point. That is the amazing grace of God. That is, that is the loving father that said, you blew it, but let me show you the point of why I'm giving you the word in the wilderness. It's so that you can get back in covenant relationship with me. I knew from the beginning that there was a possibility by giving you a free will, you'd use it to curse me. But here's what I do. I'll go ahead and make my mind up in the beginning to be slain at the foundations on your behalf. So the punchline of the word of God is at one mint. I want you to become one with me. And he tells them this, he says, make me a sanctuary so I can dwell with you. That's the love of God. He wants to dwell with us. The God of all creation who can fill all time and space condescended down from the eternal throne to sit on a four foot box called the mercy seat just to meet with you. And to remove your sins, he said, I know that heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. I know that my presence can fill all of space and time, but I will reduce all of that to sit on a four foot box just to come and look at you in the face. We have yet to even scratch the surface of the love of God. He tells him this in verse nine, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, you shall make it. There it is. That's the God paradigm. The purpose of the tabernacle is I want to dwell with you. That's the purpose. That's God's paradigm. Their commitment, their goal is the Ten Commandments. So five of the commandments, this is the constitution of their nation. They became a nation and God gave them a constitution. Here's going to be the sign. Here's going to be the things that you have to live by. Five of the commands were directly related to the relationship with God. Have no other gods before me. That's all between us and God. Don't make for yourself an idol. All right? Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Why, why, why is that between us and God? Because that's the day we go and we spend time with God. Honor your father and mother. That's a, that's a profound one. Why does honoring my father and mother over here on this tablet of five commandments, why does that relate to me and God? Because if you honor the father and mother relationship, you're going to see the profound weight of that later in the future when I show you that I'm the father and the church is your mother. Here it is. There's a reason why the apostolic church has struggled in the past few decades to produce fruit. It's because we don't have the revelation of the Father. We're scared to death to talk about the Father because we're afraid we're going to become Trinitarian. You cannot take away from him, Father. You can call him Father without being a Trinitarian. He is, according to the prophecy, the everlasting father. In fact, let me help you with this because I'm just, I'm going to spend some time here if that's all right. The Hebrew language, let me just, let me give you some revelation right now. So in the Hebrew language, the very first letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Aleph. 
It's their letter. It's like the equivalent to our letter A. Did you know that the letter Aleph in Hebrew is called the father letter? Why? Because it's the first in the order of all of the others. So they call it the father letter because it's the very first in the list of letters. That letter is unique because it's also silent. You can never hear the letter Aleph when it's put into a word. It has no sound. The only time you can hear the presence of the Aleph is when it's attached to a vowel. Why is that important? Why am I telling you this? It gets very profound. Because the word for exile, the word exile is guela in Hebrew, okay? Or gola. Do you know how to change the word exile? If you put the letter Aleph in the middle of the word exile, guess what word it becomes? Guela, redeemed. When you put the father letter in the middle of the word exile, it transforms it immediately to the Hebrew word redeemed. Now do you understand why there was a prophecy about Jesus that said he would be led before his shearers dumb and he would open up not his mouth. When Jesus was going to the cross, he never opened his mouth. He went to the cross silent. In their culture, they looked at him astounded when he would never defend himself. He never opened his mouth and he went all the way to Golgotha's hill, never arguing, never fighting. Why was Jesus so silent? Because he was proclaiming by closing his mouth the fulfillment of the prophecy that he is the father. And guess what he did? He pulled us out of exile into redemption by going to the cross silent. Guess who did it? Your dad. Why does this matter? I have a hard time serving a God that sends his son. I can really get on board with a God who came down here. Why did he become a son? So let's, let's look at that. Why in, why in the world would the father not just come down here and be the father? Because he was coming as a son to show us what we would look like when we got adopted by him. He was walking on this earth and he says, look at me. You see this? This is what you're supposed to be doing. Nobody in the Bible has shown you exactly what I've been looking for. This is what sonship looks like. It looks like washing feet. It looks like sitting with publicans, tax collectors, and sinners. It looks like sitting with people. It looks like forgiveness. It looks like truth. It looks like grace. Here's what sonship, here's the image that I'm wanting you to be conformed in when I adopt you. And here's how you'll know that my spirit's dwelling in you because you'll act like me. You won't be distorted anymore. You'll be completely redeemed back into the image that I always designed you to be in. I can't marry a distorted beast. I have to transform you through birth. The father came down here and did all this himself and he became a son so we would know what being sons would be like. If he came down and showed us just the father's side, you and I wouldn't, you wouldn't, we wouldn't know what to do right now. Well, I'm not the father, you are. Exactly. So that's why he had to put on the clothing of a son to show us how to be sons and daughters. So let's look at the other five. If you get these five right, then you already get the other five right because it's two sides of the same coin. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet. This is this relationship. Jesus is fulfilling both sides of the commandments when he says, love God, love people. Upon these hang all the law and the prophets. 
When you do this, everything, every all 613 laws start snapping into place if you will just commit your life to these two things. He's not telling you to throw in the trash everything else. These things happen by proxy of just doing those two things. Because if you love your neighbor, you won't commit adultery. If you love your neighbor, you're going to rejoice when they're blessed. You're not going to covet. If you truly love God, you won't, you won't idolize an iPhone. You won't have anything before him because you truly love him because you understand what he did on our behalf. I was warped and distorted and you came down here and did it for me. We've got to get that revelation or we're going to meander about in our walk with God, taking him for granted. We somehow think we could have saved ourselves. If someone transgressed against these five, then a guilt offering was made. This was to be done every single time a law was broken. Once a year, there was a special day where God hit the big reset button. It was called the Day of Atonement. This was the day where they would put their hand upon the scapegoat. They would send it out into the wilderness, and they sent it to Azazel, which is a type of demon. And they said, here, let, let the demonic have the sins. It's, that's who it belongs to. And they would send it out into the wilderness. But let God have the spotless lamb. And so they would, send the, they would put their hand on the, on the lamb. Their sins would transfer, and then they would kill the lamb, pour out its blood. They would put a knife into its stomach, split him open. They would remove the flesh and toss the flesh outside the camp. They all did this at an altar. So all of this gruesome stuff is happening right here at an altar. Notice that they, they stripped the lamb of its fur. Why? Because we're supposed to be going home to Eden. To get home to Eden begins with naked and not ashamed. True biblical confession happens at the altar. You see, we, we've done this weird thing where we come to an altar and we say, God, forgive me for I'm a sinner. That's not confession. Confession is coming to the altar and making it ugly, bloodied, putting the knife, the word of God into our lives and pulling off all of the pretenses and saying this, God, I, I've got tremendous amounts of pride. God, I, I am so insecure. Or God, I have a porn addiction. Or God, I, I've replaced you with my iPhone. Or God, I've replaced you with my spouse. Or, or God, I've replaced you with religion. All of this stuff, you've got to take all that off and just kill the animal right here. Then they would go, they would wash at the laver of water, all of that, all that stuff, they got to get cleansed. Then the priest would stand right here, he would take his shoes off and he would beat the dirt away because he's going to the supernatural realm. To get there, you can't have anything from the natural realm. There's no natural sunlight. This is the light from the, the golden candlesticks. Sure enough, they would walk in, there would be the table of showbread on this side where they would eat in the presence of God. They would have the golden candlestick. Then there would be that altar of incense. They would take the guts from the animal and they would put it upon the altar. They would take seashells and sap, all three of those things come from something deep within. They put it on there and this was a type of worship. And when they put the deep things on there, it would rise up as a, an ascension offering and they would smell, God would smell it and he would come down into that holy place. They would take the blood of that lamb, sprinkle it on that atonement seat and God would come down and meet with them and say, sins have been removed. The judgment of God came down and he was satisfied when he saw blood. He came with vengeance and judgment and when he got there, he saw the blood of a spotless, perfect lamb and was satisfied and sins were removed. This was the great reset button where all the sins against the entire nation was rolled back for one year. The bull offering for the priest and his family, two goats, one for the wrath of God and the other to carry the sins of the nation. This was the paradigm of the Jewish people. However, this paradigm became their relationship so much that when God came and dwelled with them, Emmanuel, 
They were so in love with their side of the seesaw that they're over there sacrificing a lamb. And John had already told them, behold the lamb. And Jesus is there walking and we beheld his glory. He, when it says in John 1, 14, it says, and he dwelled amongst us. That word dwell, guess what it is in Greek? It's tabernacled. Jesus became the tabernacle. If you're confused about the father, the son and spirit, and that's got you befuddled, I want to just introduce to you that he was the high priest according to Hebrews. He was the lamb according to John and the tabernacle. How can he be the priest that kills the lamb, the lamb which was slain and the tabernacle where both of those things happened? He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He is the priest, the lamb, and the tabernacle. He is Noah's ark. There was an upper deck, middle deck, and a lower deck. One boat, one door in the side. Jesus became salvation. And that's how he could come down and say what he was. He was ticking all the boxes. He never wanted us to take the floors of the ark and put a floor over there and a floor over there and pray to the first floor and pray to the second floor and pray to the third floor. There's one boat, one door in the side. And Jesus says, I am the door. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the father. I am the son. I am the spirit. I am the upper deck. I am the middle deck. I am the lower deck. I am your salvation. You cannot separate him. So if you receive him as salvation, then you should also receive him as father because when you get him, you get father. And this is the paradigm that I introduced to you tonight. Do not be afraid of allowing him to be what he is. He is the everlasting father. I heard somebody recently, they said, you know, the apostolics, most of them are pretty rude. I said, why do you think that is? He said, I, I think it's because they don't understand the Father. Now, that's not a statement across the whole. I've met some amazing apostolic people. I've, I've, I've come in contact with denominal people that are absolute jerks as well. So I want to be balanced. But I can't do anything about them. Where God has placed me is within this movement, and I speak to us tonight. We have got to get a revelation of that father. We need to understand that by his blood, you and I have been adopted into the faith, that you and I are no longer strangers, but we are now called sons and daughters of God. The paradigm shift that God is trying to bring to us is that revelation of the father. By praying to him and recognizing him as the father, it does not take away from him his Godhead. It does not strip from him his deity. It solidifies it even more, in my opinion, that if I acknowledge him as father, then I can put myself in position as son. And by doing so, I put myself in direct proximity of understanding how loving he is, how gracious he is, how wonderful he is, and it transforms my worship. It transforms my relationship with fellow believers because I come into the church and I don't call you brother and sister because it's tradition. I absolutely believe that you're my brother. I absolutely am convinced that you are my sister. It should be so ingrained in me that when I look at somebody, then if someone were to ever talk about you, I should say, whoa, 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 that's my brother. Don't you say a word about them. That person's made in the image of our father. They aren't perfect. They've got the 
the character of God that's on its way. But you don't get to talk about them. That would change our churches. It would transform us. That if I, I had a vision in prayer one day, I saw a big body there and I saw him grab a knife and started slitting their wrist and blood started pouring out. And I said, God, what are you showing me? He said, you, these people are my body. And when they talk about one another, it's the equivalent of cutting themselves. It should be so far removed from our nature that we would even entertain a thought about our brother. Jesus said, he said, you have heard not to commit murder. I have said, don't even call your brother Raka, which is empty headed. Because if, or don't be angry at him with a cause. Because if you don't get angry, it'll never even get to that point. You need to recognize that that person in your midst is made in the image of God. But we can't even get to the revelation of brother and sister until we solidify the revelation of father. This is going to be the great paradigm shift that I feel prophetically that's going to come to our movement. And what we're going to have to learn how to do is just to correct and to pull the steering wheel back to the center. You can't overcorrect and say, well, the, they're growing over there in the non-denominal movement and yank the wheel over here. No, you need to understand that they have a better revelation of father than we do, but we have a better revelation of that father being Jesus than they do. And so let's just, let's just understand that he's the father. Pull the wheel center and let's get some grace in our lives. Let's get some understanding that God, you would adopted me. You made the decision. I can't brag on being born. I can't claim any of that. I was saved by grace. I didn't, you came down and was intimate with your bride and I am the result of intimacy between you and the church. I was born. You don't get to brag on salvation. But we preach salvation as if it's on a shelf to sell. We're selling birth. Birth, I believe, happens when the church starts learning how to get intimate with the groom. And when the intimacy starts happening, people come in and they feel something different in the atmosphere. And then we can go as, as nursing moms and go and just begin to help them. And we're the ones who are helping with the contractions. But if we don't get all of this right, we don't see births. And if we don't see babies, we become bitter we get frustrated. We do just like Sarah and we get mad at everybody else who's having babies. And we look at that church down there and say, all oh, the reason, the only reason why they're having revival is because they compromised. No, you're just frustrated because you're not having babies and you're taking it out on your brother. I've learned a great truth. I don't have a clue what's going on in the church next door. So you know what I do? I keep it to myself. I feel like I'm hitting a bunch of buttons tonight. I don't Let's just, let's go down that road for a second. <laughs> Do you know the, the passage in Matthew where he went out and he sowed and he had a great field and then in the night when they slept, an enemy came and also sowed and it's the parable of the wheat and the tares. You know that parable? The word for tear in the Greek is the Greek word zanzania. It's an actual plant. It's an actual plant that grows in that particular area. In a zanzania plant, if you look at it right next to wheat, it's identical. It's identical in its infant stages. When it gets a little bit further along in its season, the wheat is fully identified because it starts to produce the grain. The zanzania then has no choice. Its roots are established. It is a weed, but you don't know that till it grows up. But by that point, they're fully locked together and there's nothing you can do about it. 
You'll know those that are true by their fruit. But notice what the people want to do. God, you want us to go and pluck up the tares? And he's like, you don't, you, don't, you don't have the ability to discern which is which. You don't have the ability to do that. If I let you go out there with a weed eater, you're just going to annihilate everything else that is going to bear fruit because you don't know the difference. Let them grow together. And he sends an angel to separate the wheat from the tares when they fully grew up. We're coming into an hour where the true church is going to be seen. I'm telling you, God drew a line this year. I'm speaking in, in the spirit right now. At Youth Congress, I saw an angel. I saw Michael step into that Colosseum and he grabbed a sword and he drew it right down the middle of that Colosseum. And I said, God, what are you doing? He said, I am going to divide this year and I'm going to show the ones that are with me and the ones that aren't. And it's going to be clear. It's coming full season right now. The church has been maturing and those that are actually rooted in Christ are going to start producing the fruit and those that have been faking it this whole time, it's going to be clear as day. And they're going to, we're going to be fully locked together, but God sent an angel to divide that because we've proven that we're deplorable at discerning the ones that could bear fruit and those that don't. So with all that being said, be careful what you're saying about the church across town. You can run, again, you can do what you want to do. You can talk all you, want to, all you want to talk. You can slit your wrist all you want to. That's up to you. But as for me, I'm going to say, God, you know better than I do. I'm, I'm terrible at this. And you can, you can lean to, well, I can discern spirits. <laughs> I asked God one time when I was 17 years old, I said, God, I want, I want the discerning of spirits. And God asked me why. I said, God, I want to read people's mail. And then I tried to like explain to him why that would be a good thing. I said, because God, if I can just call it out, then they'll know that you know, and that's the truth coming out and they'll see that you're real. And God spoke to me and said, let's say I gave it to you tomorrow night. This was on a Tuesday and you go into church and I let you discern that someone in that room is a pedophile. Would you go pray for him? I said, God, honestly, no. He said, then I won't give you that gift because I can't give you something that's gonna make my creation to make you love my creation less. He said, I desire that you become like me and then I'll start trusting you with those gifts. You see, when we, when we try to operate in the gifts of the spirit without the fruit of the spirit, we're like, we're like terrorists because the gifts of the spirit are a lot like weapons in the kingdom. And if we're out there without any character, we're like children armed with, with, with these machine guns. And there's only one people group in our world that puts weapons in the hands of children. That's terrorists. I want the fruit of the Spirit, and I trust that he'll give me the gifts of the Spirit. But what I'm going to work for every single day is being like Christ. I'm going to die to myself. We have got to get the paradigm shift of him being the Father to come into alignment with all this. If we understand him as the Father and we spend time with the Father, we'll look at our brothers differently. Matthew 6, 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father, 
in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespass, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespass, neither will your father forgive your trespass. Do you see what Jesus just did? Their paradigm is the tabernacle. Go to the altar, go to the laver of water, go into the holy place, go to the golden candlestick, go to the table of showbread, go to the, the, the altar of incense, and then get to God. Jesus says, hey, in this new covenant, I'm the altar. So that means I've flipped this whole thing over. You now start with me, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name is worship. That's the altar of incense. Give us this day our daily bread. He flipped their entire paradigm around. He said, I know that this is how you've been praying and I'm here to fulfill it. I'm not changing this, but I'm showing you the heart of all of this. You started at the altar, you still do, but I'm gonna be the one on the altar because I'm gonna be the lamb which was slain. And so now when you come to me, the father, it's like going to the altar. You start with the father. And what we do is, here's what we've done. I, I prayed the tabernacle since I was 17 years old and I would pray this every single day until I went on a long fast. I went on this extended fast. I was flying to California. I was at the end of this fast. And as I'm on the airplane and I'm flying to San Francisco, I was praying. I said, oh, Lord, I love you. Lord, I thank you. Lord, I give you glory. Lord, I give you honor. And at 33,000 feet, God screamed at me from heaven and he said, stop calling me, Lord. Buckle up. I said, what do you mean, God? Your word declared you as Lord. He said, I know it does. Your lifestyle is supposed to declare me as Lord but your speech should call me father. You see, I live a lifestyle that he is Lord. My lifestyle declares he's Lord. I don't do whatever I wanna do. I don't live however I wanna live. My lifestyle is heaping up to him, you are Lord. I go in prayer and I say, Lord, what do you want me to do? And he tells me and I say, not my will, but thy will be done. That's me dying to my will is declaring him as Lord, but I am a son. And so when I come to him, I can say, Heavenly Father, and I'm not going to lie to you, I have never called God Father one time since I was a kid up until that point two years ago. And it was awkward. I was trying to pray, and when I said Heavenly Father, I'm here, let me just be honest with you, I felt like one of the, the charismatics. Can I just be real with y'all? And when I prayed that, I was like, oh God, I'm going to be one of those guys. I'm like Stephen Furtick. I'm becoming that guy. The problem is, is I'll study my Bible. And as I begin to study, I said, oh, my word, it's here. So one day I'm still wrestling with it. I went into my prayer time and I started praying the tabernacle. And God stopped me. I didn't even get past his courts with thanksgiving or past his gates with thanksgiving into his courts with praise. God stopped me. He said, you're not doing that today. I said, okay, what do you want me to do? He said, I want you to study the book of Hebrews today. I said, well, God do you want me to pray? He said, you will, but I don't want you praying like that today. So I went down and I sat in front of my Bible and I began to read the book of Hebrews. Listen to what this says. Hebrews 7 
26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and those for the, those of the people. Since he did this once, once, once for all, when he offered up himself, Hebrews 9:11. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, he was the tent, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Hebrews 9, 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, Hebrews 10, 10. And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, Hebrews 10, 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. It just keeps going on and on and on. You want me to read more? Hebrews 10, it tells us, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He has done the work. So you know what I got a revelation of that day as I studied Hebrews, I read the whole book over and over and over and over again and I said, oh God, I'm becoming a liberal. No, he's pulling me to dead center. And this is what he told me. He said, you still go to the altar every single day. But what I want you to realize is I'm on it. You come to me, your father now, you're my son. And so what I want you to do is when you make a mistake, I want you to come straight to daddy and say, father, forgive me. This is what I've done today. He said, what you've been doing is you have a relationship with your altar. Here's, here's the test that to, to know that you have a relationship with the altar and not the father. It's when you're in the middle of, you're getting ready to talk about somebody. Here's how you can usually tell. Oh man, you know what? So-and-so, they're just a little, they're a little off. They're a little goofy. God loves them. You know, they're, they're good people, but you see what you just did? You started talking about someone made in the image of God, but to make yourself feel better about it, you stopped for a minute and you went to an altar and said, oh, they're good people and God loves them. You went to your altar, but then you ran back to gossip. You're in relationship with an altar because if you've been with the father, you would have never even brought their name up. Their character would have never been on your lips because you know that the father has said, if you're gonna worship me with that mouth, let that mouth be pure. Can both bitter water and sweet water come from the same well? You see, we, we have relationships. It's because we're so... We're so bent on our, our standards that our standards have become our God. That's what's happened. We're no longer in relationship with the Father. We're in relationship with our standards. Boy, we're strict. 
That's why God likes us. Let me give you a vision. I'm getting ready to close. I was in prayer about a year and a half ago. And I was walking on this big tightrope. And I was just balancing on this tightrope. I could see myself. And people gathered around. One group of people said, oh, God, I hope he doesn't fall. Another group gathered around. They said, you know, it'd be entertaining if he fell. We'd get our money's worth. This would be a good show if he fell off that tightrope. And all the while, I'm up there, and I've got a balance beam, Brother Andrew, in my hands, and I'm walking on this tightrope. And I said, oh, God, please don't let me fall. It's going to be embarrassing if I fall. I don't want to fall. God, you're, you're anointing, and you're, you're bringing me to places. And now if I fall, everybody's going to know it. Don't let me fall. And I saw the balance beam in my hands, and it had standards on it. What I was using to keep myself on this tightrope was my standards. Well, I ended up in this vision, I fell, and as I'm falling, I was praying. I said, oh God, please don't let me die. I don't wanna die. And all of a sudden, the hand of God caught me and he put me on a road. And as I was standing there, it was a, it was a firm foundation. And two walls came and slammed in on my side, real tight, real narrow, it was a narrow hallway. And I looked on the wall and the walls had the writing on it, standards. God spoke clear as day to me. He said, who told you that living for me was a tightrope? I said, our, our, our training and our upbringing, God. He said, who told you you hold the standards? I said, my upbringing. He said, the standards hold you. You don't hold them. You don't let go of the standards. Don't, don't stop living this way, but know that they're holding you. You're not holding them. And know that if you make a mistake here, you're not falling to your death. I have laid the road of grace to where if you fall, you can fall towards the Father and say, Father, I've made a mistake. Do you understand the peace that you have? You understand the peace? We don't have to get rid of a single thing. I am as strict as they come. You're not gonna find any more, anybody any more conservative than me, but I've realigned all these things now. I still have all the pieces, but they're in their right places. I don't hold the standards. My standards hold me and they're not mine. They're given to me through the word of God. I have more standards than I've ever had. I don't like to, I don't even like hearing people's name come up in conversation because I know I'm going to have to do the awkward business of shutting it down. And you thinking I'm a prude. I've had to shut down more people who have tried to talk about my brothers and sisters there. We should have so much more standards than just the length of our hair, than just the length of our sleeve, than just, we don't do this and we don't do that. There should be a whole lot more added to that list, by the way. Don't call your brother Raka. And what you get is the standards come and they hold us. But if you mess up somewhere along that part, you have 1 John that says, my little children, I speak to you so that you do not sin. But if any of you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. If you mess up, if you fall, you have something to fall down on. You have the road of grace that's been laid for us and guess who's at the end of that road? Your father. So what we've been doing is we've been, oh God, I messed up. Hold on, wait right there. And we go to the altar and we fast and we, we just, we give ourselves our lashes and then we intensify ourselves. We're in relationship with standards and an altar, not the father. But if we go to the father, here's what we've done. We have taken our tape measure out and we're doing this. How far can I get from the world? Oh look, 30 feet, I'm 30 feet from the world. And then we say, this year I made it five feet further from the world. That's the wrong direction. Turn the tape measure around and say, oh, I'm three feet closer to the Father. I'm getting, I'm five feet closer.
closer to the Father today. The world's not even in my perspective anymore because if you repented, you turned around. We're not even supposed to be looking at this world. My eyes are fixed on the Father. And when people in the world start recognizing the peace that we have through so great a salvation, through the love that we have, they look at us and they say, what's different about you? And we turn our face and look at them and we say, the Father is what's different about me. We've got to get this revelation. Our paradigm's gonna have to shift. That God, I don't wanna lose any of these things that we've been established on, but I want all the pieces in their right place. I still want to have standards. And I'll talk about that tomorrow. If you think I'm liberal, come tomorrow and listen to me teach. I still believe in holiness, but I want holiness in its proper perspective. We have turned holiness as into a place that makes us look better. You understand? We brag on something that is in place because of a weakness. You're supposed to have standards in place in an area where you're weak. Why in the world do we boast about those things? I haven't touched a single cigarette in 20 years. Awesome. Awesome. Why are you bragging about it? Because if you sit with the Father, you'll learn how humble he is. Why do we brag about things the way we do? You see, I'm, God sent me here tonight. I'm, I feel just a realignment coming across this whole district. And I feel God is going to elevate this district and you're going to see some powerful things happening in your churches. But we got to get all this right. Why do you think Jesus told him, he says, you have heard not to commit adultery, but I have said not to even look. Because if you look, you've already committed adultery in your heart. You know what he's saying there? Who looks better in that scenario? The man who has the standard of not looking or the woman? The woman's, she's benefiting. Not the man. The man's suffering because he's not getting to do what he wants to do. But by not looking, the woman's dignity is now preserved. She's not some object to be looked at. She is the image of God. She's not some toy that you look at to appease your carnal desires. She's looking better. By the man having the standard, his sister now is benefiting. I want to ask you the question, the standards that you have in life, how does it make your brother and sister look? Or is it just how it makes you look? If a true standard is in your life, it should benefit the whole body. Ladies, when you dress modestly, guess who's benefiting? The men. But we parade our women. Look at our women, how holy they are. That's, if you asked a lot of the ladies, I bet they would say, stop parading me out in front of everybody. I'm doing this to help you. Our standards should be in place. You learn these things when you go spend time with the Father. Musicians, get ready. In fact, no, don't get ready. I don't want any music tonight. Here's where God finally nailed the coffin shut for me. I was warring with all of this. I really was. My paradigm was shifting. God was introducing me to some things. And, and brother, brother Andrew, I thought I was losing my mind. I really did. I, I've been raised ultracon my whole life. Just to give you some context, on my wedding day, my wife and I have a standard in our life. We, we wanted wedding rings. And if you don't like me for that, then come and have a conversation with me. But we, we decided to exchange wedding rings because when we're walking through the mall together and we have our kids, I don't want the world thinking that we're shacked up because that's what they perceive. That's our standard. You can disagree with me. That's fine. That's perfectly fine. This is our standard. Okay? Stop making fun of people because of their standards, by the way. 
All right? So on my wedding day, my ultra-conservative family ripped me apart. So I'm telling you my paradigm where I live, okay? And so you can understand that when God comes and starts introducing a paradigm shift to me, I thought, oh God, that's it. I'm learning love, so I'm gonna be liberal. I'm getting a revelation of the Father. Oh God, I'm gonna be a Trinitarian. I have never been more convinced of the oneness of God. But I know that when I love that one God, in him is the Father. But here's what God did to me. He was setting me up. I was home from a revival. I just so happened to be home for a few days. My daughter came and started nudging me at four in the morning, all right? And she said to me what no father wants to hear at four in the morning. First of all, I am gone a lot throughout the year. Traditionally, she goes to my wife's side of the bed because my wife is there the most often. For some reason, my daughter came to my side of the bed that morning and she nudged me. And when I woke up, I saw my, my five-year-old staring me in the face. And I said, oh God, what you, what's wrong? And she said, daddy, I threw up. Now, in the Holloway home, we have a thing, okay? My wife handles the puke, all right? I do everything else. I'll do, I'll do anything else. The puke, I have a prophetic nose. I can smell stench a mile away. I can smell it before it even happens. I can, I can tell you the trash is going to stink tomorrow. I'm just like, my nose is profound, all right? So, like, if I smell puke, it's a chain reaction. That's all I'm saying, all right? Can't handle. So, all caution to the wind. I jumped up and I picked my daughter up. I turned to my wife and I said, babe, get up. Eleanor got sick in the night. Went into her room, walked in there. Sure enough, she threw up. And I walked in and I... I cleaned her sheets. My wife came in at that point and she started changing the bedding and I, I took my daughter's nightgown off and I started washing her little face. I had to wash her hair and I, I kissed her on the cheek and I laid her in the bed, nice fresh pajamas and nice fresh sheets and she started, she started crying when I turned around and I stopped and I said, baby, what's wrong? She said, daddy, I'm embarrassed. How does a five-year-old know what embarrassment is? I said, what, what are you embarrassed for? She said, because I threw up. I said, well, baby, there's nothing wrong. I said, we you just got sick. That's, that's all that happened. I kissed her on the cheek. I said, Daddy's here. It's fine. Daddy's home this weekend. Tomorrow I'm going to take you to Starbucks and I'm going to get you a cake pop. That's like our thing. And we're just, we're gonna, we're just going to have a good day tomorrow. It's all good. It's all good. And I kissed her on the cheek and I could tell she was feeling better. I turned around and I walked through the kitchen into the living room. And when my foot hit the threshold of my bedroom, that same voice that met me at 30,000 feet boomed. And he said, did you make her clean herself before you came near her? I said, no, God, that's my little girl. He said, oh, so you're a better father than me? I hit my knees and I said, I get it, God. I understand now. I get it. I understand. You're a better father. I get it. I'll preach this. God, you've revealed it to me. You need to understand the goodness of this God we're living for. You need to recognize him as father. If God only loves you because of how well you hit the ball out of the park via standards, then you do not have a father. You have an insecure daddy living vicariously through you because he never had the opportunities you had. God is beyond that. My standards and the things I 
do are set in place because of weaknesses. And he doesn't look at that and say, I love you more because you're doing less. He looks at me and he says, I love you because you're mine. I love you because you're being made in my image. I love you because you're loving your brothers. I love you because you're kind. I love you because you're being gentle. I love you because you're being patient. I love you because of that self-control. I love you because I'm seeing my nature in you. You're truly my child because you have my DNA. You're starting to act like me. You're looking like the son, which was Christ Jesus. Hear me right now. The most profound part of all of this is God, I can start my prayer meetings with you. When you realize that, this is what happened to me as I laid down and I was weeping at 420 in the morning. God spoke to me. He said, son, here's what you get. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, I'm going to be sitting right here in this bedroom and your voice is the first one I want to hear. He said, I will have been waiting here all night to talk to you in the morning. And I said, God, you mean I don't have to just spend four hours at the altar tomorrow making sure that everything's all right? He said, you can, but do it with me because I'm your altar. You start with the Father, our Father who art in heaven. Come on, this is the part where we get the benefits. And I said, God, what does that mean? He said, that means I don't want you touching that cell phone first thing in the morning because I will have been waiting all night to talk to you. I get to start every prayer meeting now right in the presence of God. I get to walk right into the presence of my Father. And if I made mistakes, I can come to him and say, God, I've made this terrible mistake. And he comes down and he says, that's what I'm here for. I'm going to help you. And then he gives me instruction and wisdom on how to not make the mistake again so that I can be with him. I want you to stand your feet right now. And if you have been bogged down with some, some things that has just kept you from really realizing what God is, I want you to just shift the paradigm tonight. I want you, if you've got to go and study it, I'm fine with that. I realize I've thrown a lot at you, but I want you to get this peace that comes from sons and daughters with the Father. I want you to lift up your hands right now and I want you to pray to the Father and I want you to get the revelation that when you call on him, he comes down into this room and he meets with those that have been born. When you were baptized in the name of Jesus, when you were filled with the Holy Ghost, you became sons and daughters in the kingdom. Sinners still have to go to that process, but you and I get to start with the Father. Once that sinner has been born, they also get to start with the Father. But you and I, we have a great benefit tonight. We get to go straight into the presence of God. We get to go straight to his face and we get to lean on him and we can confess to him, God, I've got some issues. I've got some things. Here they are, God. I've got pride. Oh God, I, I've, I've got some stuff that's in the way of me and you. And when God hears it, he says, that's what I'm here for. I'm going to come down and I'm going to help clean you. I'm gonna, you're going to be washed by the water of my word. Right now, you get the benefit of healing. You get the benefits of peace. You get the benefits of comfort. You get the benefits of joy that only comes through the revelation that he is your father. He came down as a high priest so that he could crucify himself. By being the priest, he was God. By being the lamb, he was the son. By being the tabernacle, he was the spirit. All of it wrapped up into one being and he did it for you. He did it so that you can meet with him. He did it so that you could have joy. He did it so you could have peace. I want you to see your father going to war on your behalf. I want you to see him going to that cross on your behalf. And I want you to worship him from that revelation that God is far better 
than a list of rules. We'll have all those, but that's not why he loves us. He loves us because while you were we at sinners, he loved you. So he's going to love you even more now that you're born into his image. I want you to worship him. That's what I want you to do. I want you to lift him up, brag on him. Let the peace of God begin to enrapture your mind right now. The Bible says that he will keep our minds. Would you let him deposit peace into you right now? Don't let any of the things go. I'm not, that's not what we're advocating for. But can you realize that he loved you before you had a standard? Keep the standards. That's why they're there. You got to have them because you're too weak. You'll fail every time. But can you realize that he loves you beyond that? He loves you because you're his son. He loves you because you're his daughter. So much that he would die for you. Would you worship that good God? If you're here and you've never been filled with the Holy Ghost, here's what happens. The Bible says that his spirit comes into us and it bears witness with our spirit whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. There's something about that new birth that when you're filled with the Holy Ghost, his spirit comes in and it cries unto our spirit. And by that, we begin to speak in another tongue. And I believe that it's declaring, I've been adopted. I can call him Father now through the indwelling spirit. So if you're here tonight and you have never been filled with the Holy Ghost, I want you to know that God wanted you to have it so bad that he would come down himself into the flesh, that he would condescend himself from heaven's throne and he would put on, take off eternity and put on temporal just so that you and I can have it. So if you're here and you've never been filled with the Holy Ghost, evidence of speaking in tongues, I want you to lift up your hands right now. If that's you and you've never experienced that new birth, I want you to throw those hands up and here's what the brothers and sisters are gonna do. We want you to experience it so bad that we're gonna begin to pray on your behalf. What we're gonna do is we're going to to pray in intercession that any spirit that's been keeping you from receiving it what we're going to do is we're going to war against that in the spirit right now this is the greatest call of the church the church intercedes on behalf when we begin to intercede we pull up a chair next to the intercessor that is Christ whoever liveth to make intercession for the people if you want to know where God is he's at the throne interceding on our behalf so right now I want you to partner yourself and make yourself available to intercession there's people in this city there's people in this district there's people in this region that is waiting on the church, their future brothers and sisters, to begin to pray on behalf of a lost and dying world. Our high 
calling is to worship God. It's to worship him in spirit and in truth. But then it's to go and evangelize your high calling. You were not saved for your own. You were saved so that you could go to the world. God, it's his good pleasure to fill his people with his spirit. Those that don't have the Holy Ghost, listen around. Those are your brothers and sisters. Those are those that have been filled with the Spirit, and God's no respect of person. So what you're hearing them do, it's God's good pleasure to give to you as well. All you have to do is just say, God, I don't want to live the way I've lived anymore. I don't want to do any of the things that I want to do anymore. I'm giving all of that up, and I want to live for you. I want to pray every day, not my will, but thy will. And I start that right now by giving over myself to you. Lord, in the name of Jesus, us. If there be any in this room who's never experienced this new birth, I pray in the name, almighty God, that they get the revelation of it. God, it's I don't have to ask you to give it. You're always ready. But God, the people sometimes don't believe that you're willing. So God, I pray that the people in this room who's yet to receive the Holy Ghost get a revelation of what it is you want to do for them. God, to the rest of us, let us get a deep, profound understanding that your love came down here as the Father to redeem us. God, let Let us walk in redemption. Let us walk in the certainty of this salvation. Let us not deny so great a salvation, but Lord, let us walk in your ways. Let us pursue you. Let us turn the tape measure around and get closer to you than we've ever been going into this new year. God, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would give us the revelation. Let it burrow its way so deep down into our lives that on the days when we're not doing so well, we can lean into the love of the Father. God, I pray that if there's any condemnation in this room, if there's any broken minds, any broken past, Lord, let them receive healing right now that can come only by the loving hand of a father. I pray that the minds of those that have been broken, Lord, that those that have been hurt from things in the past, I pray that they feel the love of God tonight that's falling from heaven onto us because that's your good pleasure is to come and dwell with the sons and daughters. If there's anybody around you that needs the Holy Ghost, would you not just pray, but would you go and lay hands on them? Would you go and make intercession on their behalf? Would you begin to war with them? If there's people in here, if you have been broken by anything, if there's something in your life that has hurt you, God wants to come down and he wants to work on that. He wants to heal you of that. If your relationship with God has been distorted and broken, I want you to start fresh right now. I want you to begin allowing the Father to just call you a little deeper into relationship with him.